Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to The Global Current, the CN Hall School of Diplomacy and International Relations podcast. Each week, we break down a new topic in global affairs and have a conversation analyzing different perspectives. This is your host, Valentina Rijarena. Before we get into this week's topic, our news briefer, Shweta Pertasti, will give us an update on what's going on around the globe this week. The United Nations Human Rights Council opened its first session of 2021 amid growing global human rights concerns. The Council will address several issues, including the military coup in Myanmar, the arrest of Alexei Navalny, and the conflict in Ethiopia. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres opened the first meeting of the Council by highlighting the importance of a global commitment to human rights. Human rights are our bloodline. They connect us to one another as equals. Human rights are our lifeline. They are the pathway to resolving tensions and forging lasting peace. And human rights are on the front line. They are the building blocks of a world of dignity and opportunity for all, and they are under fire every day. Italy's ambassador to the Democratic Republic of Congo was killed Monday while traveling with the United Nations World Food Program convoy. Ambassador Luca Atanasio's death was confirmed by the Italian foreign minister, as were the deaths of an Italian military police officer and the convoy's Congolese driver. Protests in Yerevan, Armenia resumed on Monday after a brief pause during the winter. Thousands of protesters marched in the center of Yerevan, calling for Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan's resignation. Critics condemn his handling of the ongoing conflict with Azerbaijan in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. The Canadian Parliament unanimously passed a non-binding motion on Monday regarding China's controversial treatment of the Uyghur community in the Xinjiang province. The motion officially defined China's actions as genocide and called for the 2022 Winter Olympics to be moved from Beijing. While the majority of Canadian Liberals support the motion, Liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his cabinet abstained from voting on the motion. After months of downplaying the disease and its effects, Tanzania's president publicly admitted during a Sunday church mass that the coronavirus is deadly to Tanz Tanzanian citizens. Previously, President John Magafuli advocated prayer as a tool against COVID-19. Now, he is urging citizens to wear face coverings and take other precautions against the virus. However, he has emphasized his mistrust of goods produced in foreign countries, including face masks and the COVID vaccine. This week, we will be focusing on the mass protests occurring in Russia, triggered by the poisoning and arrest of Russian opposition leader, Alex Navalny. Navalny has been a great critic of the Russian government and its leader, Vladimir Putin. He nearly died after being poisoned by the Russian government and was evacuated to Germany. After recovering and returning to Russia, Navalny was quickly arrested and put on trial. This has led to outrage and mass protests by the Russian people and the arrest of many who dare to participate. In this episode, we will discuss the effects of Navani's fight for the political change and the possible impacts of, on Russia's future. This week, we're keeping it in current with two of our own CN Hall students. Our first analyst covering the domestic perspective, Kasha Kostaba. Welcome, Kasha. Hello. Our second analyst covering the international perspective is Jackie Ballard. Hi, Val. Thanks for having me today. Just to start off, Please tell me more about who is Alex Navani and what's his past like? Who does he really represent here? Okay, so Alexei Navalny is a Russian opposition leader who came into international prominence around 2011 
by organizing a lot of anti-government demonstrations. He ran for public office. At one point, he ran for mayor of Moscow in 2013. In 2018, he also tried to run for president of Russia against Vladimir Putin, but he was barred because he has a criminal record for embezzlement. And he's the leader of the Russian Future Party, which is basically the liberal or opposition party to the uh, Vladimir Putin's current party. The In 2018, the Wall Street Journal described Navalny as the man Vladimir Putin fears most, and Putin even refuses to reference him by name. That's pretty insane. Um, Jackie, did you want to add on to that? Yeah, thank you, Kasha. Um, that's all very true. And although Alexei Navalny has garnered great support in Russia, um, some people compare his anti-immigrant and nationalist rhetoric with um, some Trumpian ideas in the U.S. And although he has been known in his fight against corruption and against Putin, um, his ideals are not 100% Western and democratic. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Can you expand on that? How would you say that it's nationalistic? What does his campaign stand for or what did his campaign stand for? His main goal of the campaign is against Putin and against the corruption within that government. But because of that, he advocates for a very strong pro-Russian government and pro-the people, which of course is pro-democracy. But because of that, it has led to a lot of nationalistic views, especially anti-immigration. Wow. Hmm. Did you want to add on to that, Kasha, at all? I just agree with what Jackie said. She brought up a lot of good points and a lot of supporters who protested don't say they don't necessarily support Navalny, but they support going against Vladimir Putin and his whole administration. So even though a lot of um, protesters don't necessarily support him, they support getting away from what Russia is now and turning maybe slightly more to the left, but it's not really the left on a grand scale compared to the United States or the West. Yeah, going off what Kasha said, I think that that's one of the reasons why Alexei Navalny's arrest is so important is because he does represent like a crack in Putin's power where all of the pent-up discontent over economic stagnation or political con or political corruption in Russia is really coming to a head here because of his arrest and people are beginning to um, express their frustration with this authoritarian regime. And Navalny has become the figurehead of that. Wow, so I'm hearing that people don't really necessarily support all his ideas, but they support more the fact that they are that Navani is standing up against Putin and his corruption and this very repressive government. And in a way, I feel like that's something we saw here in the U.S. Say with Joe Biden and Trump. So. Navani has, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of taken advantage of these people's discontent to further his own plans, um, especially how has the pandemic affected, you know, the Russian economy and the way everything was going? I would have to say in Russia, compared to a lot of Western uh, countries with the pandemic, they're not very strict on restrictions. How ever looking at the economy, a lot of the pent up discontent with the people, um, 
a lot of the the value of the ruble is going down. It's fl- been fluctuating a lot. Um, there's an ongoing economic downturn, lower wages in jobs, especially a lot of like part-time or beginner-level jobs. Um, and really, decade-high decade unemployment has also contributed to the size of these protests. So a lot of these problems started even before the pandemic, and the pandemic has just made it worse, especially since a lot of restrictions that Western countries or maybe countries in Asia and such have implemented, Russia's not really implementing them. So it's kind of made it worse, but they continue to ignore it. So you're saying that the Russian people have not much to lose during these protests and that they just are willing to go on, go out on a limb and give it all they got. Can you tell me what are these protests like? Under what conditions are they protesting in? Because I know Russia is like super cold. And if it's cold here in New Jersey, where we're at right now, I can only imagine in Russia. So after Navalny returned to Russia, he was immediately detained upon his arrival, which was January 17th. And that following Saturday, January 23rd, the the protests began to break out nationwide. And since then, we've seen continuing protests throughout the past few weekends. And um, they've broken out in over 70 cities across Russia. And the conditions are, of course, being midwinter, pretty harsh right now. Um, We are seeing a lot of police violence from this. We are seeing so many people detained. In the largest protest in Moscow, the very first weekend, 40,000 people were gathered. And since then, approximately 11,000 people have been detained. However, the Russian government is trying to portray the demonstrators as a small group of people that have been misled by Navalny. And they're trying to quiet down the protests and so far have refused to publicly acknowledge them. How are they? quieting down the protests? Um, One big thing is the Russian government since 2019, since a lot of this has been raised, they had a lot of strong restrictions on their internet. Um, November 19th, a draft law was submitted to Russia's parliament that would give authorities power to block websites that censored the Russian state or the Kremlin's media content. So they very heavily censor the internet and that's part of why we don't a lot of people outside of russia don't even know the extent that some of these protests have gone into um the police are also using tactics in 2012 there were a lot of protests when vladimir putin said that he was going to run for re-election and so a lot of the police have used security measures that they used from then to quiet down the protests, such as they shut down Moscow for a few days, they would block off the streets, they would block off the metro stations. So if people from like surrounding towns came in, if they want to go to Moscow, sometimes it would be hard for them to even get out of the city or contact family because they would close down a lot of public businesses and transportation and stuff like that. And there's been a lot of pre- police brutality, especially in larger cities, the larger the city, it's been correlation with like the more violent and longer lasting protests. I can imagine that the internet is a really big part of how they could push back on people who are protesting. Um, 
especially since I've heard that Navani became so well-known and popular through the internet. Can one of you expand on that, um, how he might have used social media to get a message out? Yeah, sure. So he has 6.5 million YouTube subscribers with over 1 billion views. He's been making videos for years. I believe his YouTube channel started in 2013, although I'm not sure if he directly started uploading videos in 2013, but he's amassed over 1 billion views. And he also has 2.5 million Twitter followers which it's still active despite his arrest. He was active on it earlier today, just retweeting a lot of anti-government stuff or putting his own ideas out there. And as we've seen in the US, like what before President, former President Trump's um, Twitter was suspended, Twitter and stuff like Instagram is very popular for political leaders to get their agendas out there. So just like in the US or other countries, Navalny has been using that strategy to gain popularity, especially with the younger generations who might more align with some of his beliefs. Kasha, you mentioned that he has so many followers on social media. I want to ask Jackie, Jackie, do you believe that if there was no social media, Navalny could have gotten this far? I know that um, uh, from an international stance, I feel like we look at what he posts and we might not have a lot of power from outside of Russia to really do much for them, the protesters, but following and staying updated with these posts can help in a way. So again, do you feel like he could have gotten, gotten this far if it wasn't for social media? I don't think that he would have gotten this far if it wasn't for social media. Um, social media has played a huge role in his platform, in his advocacy, and all the work that he's managed to do so far fighting against Putin and against corruption. And while Russian citizens have been able to see this, and while that's gained him much popularity in Russia, um, the international community has been able to see this as well, especially since his arrest. And because of that, and due to the coverage that he's received, um, several, several Western democracies, including the entire EU um, and the United States have come out and condemned Putin's action of arresting him and called for his immediate release. Can we actually talk a little bit more about how he was poisoned? Yeah, so basically he was on a flight from the city of Tomsk to Moscow, and he began feeling very sick very quickly. So they decided to um, emergency land the airplane and take him to a hospital in the city of Omsk. Um, basically, when he got to the airport, he was very quickly ill to the point where he got into a coma and he was put onto a ventilator. His spokeswoman, Kira Yarmash, I believe, also said that since he awoke that morning, he hadn't consumed anything besides a cup of tea that he acquired at the airport. So it was suspected that someone in the, from the Kremlin had given him something, you know, that he was poisoned. So after he was treated a little at the hospital, he was taken to Germany 
he was evacuated to Germany just for his safety precautions. And some of the doctors and physicians that checked him out said that the toxin that they found when mixed into a hot drink is rapidly absorbed by the body. So that explains why he felt the implications so quickly after just having the drink a few hours prior. Once he was in Germany, he stayed in the hospital for about a month. Um, December 14th, the Russian they concluded that the Russia's Federal Security Service was responsible for the poisoning. So basically a service that the Kremlin controls was responsible for in some form. Wow, that's insane. I mean, we know that Russians can be pretty hardcore, but they just poisoned this man for trying to change the whole political system. Um, I mean, that's a, it's, it's already a hard job, and now he's being targeted um, and almost killed for that. Do we know how he's doing now? Um, once he was released to the ho- from the hospital, he seems to do- be doing fine now. I guess they flushed it from the system. There's not many details, but he was able to come back to Russia. Obviously, now he has been detained, but they did keep him in Germany for a few months after he was released in the hospital where he spent about a month. So. Thank you. Wow. So you mentioned that he went back to Russia. Jackie, do you know how he's doing in Russia now? What's the latest news on his arrests? So as we mentioned before, uh, he returned to Russia on January 17th and was immediately detained, which is what sparked the protests. However, on February 2nd, he had his actual trial, which is when he was sentenced to two years and eight months in a penal colony. For breaching the terms of a 20, for breaching the terms of a 2014 probation, and since then um, he faced additional trials for libel cases and embezzlement cases, um, which of course continued future protests. However, his support group and Navalny himself came out and said that he would like the protest to pause until spring because of um, fears of the coronavirus. And he is currently advocating for a more peaceful type of resistance. In fact, on Valentine's Day, Navalny supporters staged individual protests by lighting up their cell phones for 15 minutes outside their homes, which was supposed to support the message that, quote, love is stronger than fear. So um, as Kasha mentioned, he still is active on social media. He's still garnering support and um, is still working toward being released from that nearly two and a half year sentence. Hmm, that's very interesting. Um, you mentioned that he told people to pause on the protests. Do we think that's smart given that those protests are what has kind of pushed his movement further? I believe that that proves that Navalny genuinely does care about his supporters and that he's not just having them protest for the sake of his own agenda. He recognizes that the protests need to be safe, um, that he is concerned about COVID and he is concerned about the thousands of people that were arrested and detained because of that. So he's not saying to discontinue the fight, he's just saying to fight smarter. Wow, yeah, that's that's definitely a brighter perspective. How does this all affect Putin's grip on Russian society? I would have to say that 
right now, while it has gained some traction in the international community, because a lot of liberal for Russia politicians have risen up in the past and created similar traction, he, Vladimir Putin himself and his cronies don't really consider it much of a threat. And I think that if they do come back in the spring, like Jackie said, with protests smarter planned out, it will continue to have some detriment. Although right now, Putin doesn't see it as a threat. Like I said, he has assassinated past like liberal politicians in 2016, um, Boris Nemtsov, I believe. He isolated hundreds of people who have gone against him have been put to jail. So I do think he doesn't see it as a threat because he has been in power in some way since 1999, which is 22 years. So he doesn't see this as a threat, but I do think it depends on what happens in the spring and maybe the response from the international community as well. That's interesting that you mentioned that, Kasha. Um, Julia Davis, who is a Russian media analyst and a disinformation specialist, recently came out in an interview and said that, quote, Putin is now in a no-win situation. If he kills Navalny in prison, then he becomes a martyr, and it would be impossible to deny who is responsible for that. And if Navalny is allowed to continue to function, he will continue to be a thorn in Putin's side. And I think that this really illustrates that Putin is concerned about Navalny's activity, and he does realize that this may represent a shift in Russian power, especially because of the recent pro-Western and pro-democracy ideals that the citizens have been holding. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, I mean, I don't recall seeing anything like this happening in Russia, at least in my um, own experience. I mean, I think this is very big for Russia. It really just, it can't be the same afterwards. Uh, I think especially for the protesters, if they have already stepped out to do this, going back is no longer an option. How has the international community been responding to these events? How important is Russia in general that other countries should be worried about what is happening? So most Western countries, um, like I mentioned before, the US and all of the EU have already condemned Russia's actions for this. However, um, Amnesty International specifically called for his release, along with the former Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. So we could see from many, many different countries, many individuals and many organizations that um, this action by Putin simply isn't okay. And I'm very interested to see if this does actually cause any change in Russia because we could see that it's a direct violation of democracy. Has there been any kind of um, concrete threats from the international community as in if you don't release him, this will happen. Because we know that Russia is very big, powerful in their own way. So can they really be affected by some people just saying, hey, you should release him because, you know, that's the quote unquote right thing to do. Yes. So actually, the European Court of Human Rights um, did come out in a statement and demanded that Russia immediately release Navalny. And under the Magnitsky Act, which is a new act that's designed to protect human rights, 
the European Union has imposed sanctions on Russia. Um, Russia did previously threaten to cut ties with the EU if those said sanctions were imposed. So now it is their turn to make a decision on how they will react to these sanctions. And Biden, in a recent visit to the State Department, said that he is going to develop a plan for Navalny's guaranteed release. However, he has been yet to actually reveal what this plan would be. Um, unfortunately, the Kremlin has referred to these reactions as a blatant and gross interference in the judicial affairs of a sovereign state, and it has worsened tensions in general between Russia and most Western countries. Oh, that's interesting um, that they just don't want anyone else involved with such blatant corruption that um, obviously needs some international response. Do we see maybe Russia kind of going back to an isolation period, even though they're already kind of isolated, but do we see them maybe isolating themselves a little bit more? Um, I think we could see something if a lot of countries band together and are very strict about this. Like I said earlier, Putin outwardly says he's not afraid of it, even though it's kind of clear that something will happen in the future, especially whatever happens come spring. He, But he's trying to seem all big and tough, like he's not really afraid by it. So I think it would have to spark a lot more... Um, reaction and backlash from the international community than it has already, which seems like a big ask, but this is a threat to democracy, you know? So if Western countries want to uphold ideals that they say they have, I believe that they should continue to be hard on the Kremlin and fight for his release and fight for these people. Thank you, Kasha. Um, Jackie, do you want to say one more thing before we wrap up? I think that Kasha did expand on that very well. And I agree with what she said that although Putin has proved to be a very stubborn leader in the past, um, he can't fight against the entire force of the Western world without completely isolating Russia. So I'm very interested to see how these protests will continue to play out, um, especially with their possible resurgence come spring. Okay, thank you so much. Kasha and Jackie for being here with me and talking about this very important subject. But that's all the time we have for today. Uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. This show could not be made possible without our crew. Executive producer Jared Dang, assistant producer Joaquin Matumis, and Jasmine DeLeon, technical producer Brittany Segarra, and assistant technical producer Jason Marieski. I am your host, Valentina Orejarena, and I thank you for tuning in. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seen Hall University. As always, keep it in current with us and catch us on the waves next Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.5 FMWSOU.